Thank you, Miss Debbie. Thanks to each of y'all for your suggestions. Enjoy singing together, worshiping the Lord together. All righty. We're going to be in, uh, starting in Psalm is where we're going for our passage this evening, the book of Psalm, chapter number one. We're looking at this thought of misunderstood, misunderstood, modern misunderstandings of an ancient text. I was trying to start at the wrong place there, but uh, modern misunderstandings of an ancient text. And we're looking at this thought of some of the questions that are currently being brought up concerning uh, the Word of God and whether or not uh, we should believe in God. Last week we showed you a lot of the memes and type of things that are being produced where people are cherry-picking scriptures out of the Word of God and they are using these to cast doubt on the Word of God. And so we're going to continue in that thought. And I admit that uh, we'll probably not get straight into answering the questions, but we're going to lay some groundwork as we head towards answering some of these questions. Now last week, I believe Brother Cecil asked if y'all could ask questions, and I do invite you to ask questions if you have questions you want to ask. And when we get to the part where we're uh, discussing some of these questions that have been raised, I'll uh, invite you to have some dialogue if you would like to. If you have a subject matter that you would like to hear us address, feel free to write that down and let us know. I'll be happy to look into those things as much as I can. But whenever we consider this thing of people casting doubt on the Word of God. We come here to Psalm chapter number 1. We're going to read verse 1 down through verse number 3. And then I'll make some comments about this. The Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Here in the first verse of Psalm chapter number 1, in verse number 1, of course we've often looked at this as the three steps down, and many times we look at this as a warning uh, for Christians. We use this as a warning to young people, you know, watch who you listen to, watch who you talk to. And that concept is definitely there and definitely uh, something that we can learn from. But whenever I look at this passage tonight, I want to bring out the fact that in this study, I understand that I may not be able to help the scorner. I may not be able to change the mind of those who are creating these memes who are casting doubt. But my thought with this is to run intervention for those that they are affecting. Uh, our young people, and although this is another subject that we could speak on for hours and hours, our young people have access to information that I didn't have access to as a kid and that many of you did not have access to as a kid. Now, as we could preach for hours on the dangers of the Internet. We could preach for hours on the importance of how we monitor the Internet and how we allow our children to get access to it. The truth of the matter is uh, it's here. It's part of our society, and although we may be able to convince a few in the church house to guard their child's Internet access, the world as a whole pays no attention. 
and children the world around have access to tons of information. And so young people are growing up with access to this and they are being bombarded with the arguments of the scorners. So my thought with this study is to equip us so that when young souls who are searching for the truth come to us with questions about what they've seen declared by the scorners, we will be prepared to give an answer. So that is my thought with this. And he says here, Blessed the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. I understand that there are people who have made their mind up that they do not believe in God. They have walked away from the truth. They have determined that they will never return to it. And the Bible says that when they do not like to retain God in their mind, that God gives them up to a reprobate mind. And there are some of these individuals that we're not going to be able to change. They have chosen their destiny. But they are endeavoring to take the whole world with them. And as Christians, it's our job to stand in the gap. And so that is my uh, hope with this that we will establish uh, some ways that we can confidently answer the questions of the scorner to those who are earnestly and sincerely seeking. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll get into the lesson. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, dear Lord, that it's true. I thank you, dear Lord, that it's as a rock. Lord, it's it's sure, it's steadfast. I thank you, Lord, we can stand upon it in confidence. I thank you, dear Lord, that we can base our actions upon its guidelines. I thank you, dear Lord, Lord, that we can, we can make our decisions based uh, upon the wisdom of your word. And Lord, we can know, uh, Father, that you have promised if we follow your word, Lord, that it will work out for the best. And Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you we can trust it. Father, I thank you that you have entrusted us with this treasure. But Father, my prayer is, uh, Lord, for myself and then Lord as a pastor for this congregation, that Lord, we will be a people who are equipped uh, to handle the treasure of your word. And Lord, that we will not be people who carry around uh, a book of information that we're unfamiliar with, uh, but Lord, that we will, each and every one of us, be students of the word of God uh, who can expound and explain and answer uh, Uh, Lord, the cries of the critic, that, Lord, we may be able to pull some, uh, Lord, out of the clutches of Satan and help them find eternal life. Bless now as we look at this study tonight. I pray, dear Lord, that you will work in our hearts uh, and, Lord, prepare our minds, uh, Father, as we look at this. And, Lord, we'll thank you. Be with the children's ministry, the teen ministry, those that are working with the young people. Bless them this evening. Thank you, dear Lord, for the scripture assembly and all that was done and accomplished. Father, I thank you for it. Bless us now as we look in your word. And, Father, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, what we brought up last week was several things that people are pointing out uh, as flaws with the Bible. Lots of things they say uh, that this is a flaw with the Bible. Many times uh, even uh, casting God against Jesus, saying that they do not have the same agenda, pointing out things that took place in the Old Testament uh, and wrongly representing them, making it seem like the God of the Old Testament uh, was arrogant, uh, uh, that he uh, practiced genocide and all these type of things. And so a lot of flaws are, people are trying to pull out what they say are flaws in 
this book, this book, the Word of God. There are several things that we'll look at whenever we get to explaining how to handle the Bible as a whole that helps answer this. But tonight I want to look at the author of the book. Before you can debate the possible flaws in a book, you must establish the credibility of the book. The credibility of any book, any theory, any idea is directly linked to the source or the thought from which it originated. If the source isn't credible, then the book isn't credible. I have a lot of books on my shelves there in my office and I always tell Melissa that if I ever remodel my office I want it to have bookshelves on every wall all the way around. I just love books and love reading good books, you know, and so I love that. But every now and again, someone will ask me about an author. And I'll say, he don't know what he's talking about. I don't have any of his books. I've had folks give me books. And I would read a chapter or two and say, I don't have time for that one. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You you, uh, look at books and you want to know the credibility of the book. The credibility of the book is linked to the source. Who wrote the book? If the source isn't credible then anything they produce lacks credibility. A book written on any subject by someone with no experience in that subject is immediately disregarded because they have no experience in that subject. Uh, Boy, you can find this out if you uh, like to go on YouTube. I'm a YouTube mechanic. When it comes time to fix my vehicle, I go to YouTube to figure out how to fix my vehicle. If I'm going to fix my wash machine, I go to YouTube to figure out how to fix my wash machine. When I worked for Clayton Homes, I would go to a person's house to fix their appliance and I would set my laptop up on their kitchen counter and watch a YouTube and fix their appliance and they never know the difference. But anyway, (laughs) I, I love going to YouTube figuring out how to do things. But sometimes I will Google how to fix my wash machine and about three seconds in, I'm like, this guy ain't never worked on a washing machine. He has no idea what he's doing. Sometimes I'll try to fix an automobile watching the YouTube, and I'll be like, "Uh uh-uh, that is not the way this works. This guy's not ever done this. He's just trying to gain popularity. Any book, any video, any uh, teaching that is given by someone with no experience, we immediately disregard what they've produced because they themselves are not credible. Whenever we question the supposed errors, found in a book or in the Bible as we're looking at here, the aim, the aim of those questioning this book is not at this book. Their aim is at the author of the book. Whenever they attack this book and point out flaws in this book, what they are trying to do is discredit the author of the book. Atheist and... Agnostics, atheists, and these folks are those that are attacking this book, and they, in doing so, they are trying to discredit the author of the book. Statistically, one in five people, one in five people are either atheist, agnostic, or couldn't care less about God. One in five. This group of people view the Bible and the source of the Bible to lack credibility. Therefore, they do not have any problem with destroying and tearing down this book. What interests me about them, though, is that they don't attack any other book. The reason they don't attack any other book is because no other book is a threat 
to what they say they believe. But this book is a threat, so they attack this book, and they have no problem highlighting these supposed flaws, and they do it to do what they call enlightening those who are looking to, for answers to life's problems. They want to enlighten them. There's a saying that we often use that really fits right here. They say that misery loves company. And that really fits with what we're looking at right here because it's not enough for me to say that I don't believe in God. The reason it's not enough is because it is impossible, it is impossible for a human being who was created by God to honestly deny the existence of God. It is impossible. We know inside our inner being that there is a supernatural creator who designed us. He integrated into us uh, the understanding and the knowledge of our creator. So it is impossible for me to honestly not believe in him. All I am able to do is claim that I do not believe in him. All I'm able to do is claim that I don't believe he exists, but I must have a support because this is a pretty big thing to try to accomplish on my own. So I must have support. So what do these atheists and agnostics do? They produce the type of stuff we looked at last week to cause others to decide that they don't believe in God either. Now whenever we've got a large group of people who are agreeing with me, I find confidence and I can move forward convincing myself that, yes, there really isn't a God. So we see that this is what they are doing is they are trying to deceive that they might justify their own unbelief. So they work to cause others to doubt the Scriptures so that others will agree with them concerning the fact that there is a God and they build their ranks, they build their confidence and continue to move forward. Our job as Christians is to intervene and be able to give an answer. You know, I find it interesting that these people who claim there, that there isn't, a, now this isn't true of all of them, but those who are published and claim there isn't a God are very intelligent people. Now, there's a difference in having knowledge and using knowledge correctly. Having knowledge is one thing. To use knowledge correctly is wisdom. At the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But these people who promote this stuff are extremely intelligent people and they know how to articulate their arguments in such a way that it comes across very convincing. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself, teaching to myself as much as to any of you. This is something that, boy, the Lord has just been working on me and working on me, so we're growing together in this. So I don't want you to feel that this is uh, condemning anyone. This is an area we need to grow together. I'm troubled that I cannot answer as articulate as they can condemn. I believe it's important as Christians that if they give the argument, I am able to answer the argument to the point that it is truly at the individual's choice whether they will believe or disbelieve. Too often, too often, and it's been done in a good heart, it's been done uh, with a a good, sincere drive. But too often, folks have come to us with questions that were brought up by those who did not believe in God and our answer was, you just have to believe. 
Now that's a wonderful answer, except that it's oftentimes given because we don't have a better answer. And I believe it's important that we learn how to answer the arguments given by the agnostics. So we're going to try to look at this. So before we can begin to answer the doubt that is placed on the Word of God, the first thing we must do, I believe, is establish the credibility of the author. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be asking and answering three questions that I believe will lay the groundwork for defending the credibility of the author and the reliability of Scripture and lay a foundation that will help us to answer the doubts that have been raised by the modern misunderstandings and twistings of Scripture. So the three questions we'll be asking, which is the first thing, first blanks there on your worksheet, the three questions we'll be asking and answering over the next few weeks are first, is there a God? First question, and this is what we'll be looking at tonight, is this question, is there a God? Now I know that all of us can readily give our opinion with a simple yes or no, but we need to have more a fuller answer to this question. Second thing that we'll be asking is if there is a God, if we decide there is a God, is God the God of the Bible? Once we decide that there is a God, is He the God that we read of in the Word of God? So first tonight, we'll be looking at the fact, is there a God? Or the question, is there a God? Then next week, we'll be looking at, since we have concluded that there is a God, is this the God of the Bible? And then the third thing that we'll be approaching is how do we understand the God of the Bible? Uh, he is much bigger than us. He is much greater than us. How do we as... as um, limited humans get an understanding of the God of the Bible. So the first question that we're going to consider this evening is this question, is there a God? Is there a God? Now, as I said a minute ago, we can readily answer this question uh, based on our own personal belief. Uh, I will readily say absolutely, 100%, there is a God. I have no question. I have no doubt. There have been times in my life that there have been faucets of religion that I have struggled with, but I can honestly say I have never, ever, ever questioned the existence of God. It, it, to me, it is so obvious, it is so evident, I do not understand how anyone could ever question the existence of God. Based on my own belief, absolutely there is a God. But this evening I want to provide several, uh, what I'm calling observable proofs that concern the existence of the supernatural. My hope is that these arguments will equip us to cause those who are being swayed by the scornful to re evaluate what they're hearing and consider the reality and the importance of the God of the universe. So this evening we're going to present several proofs of the reality of the supernatural. The first evidence of a higher power is the origin of the universe. The first evidence that we have that there is definitely a higher power, someone or something that is bigger than us, is the origin of the universe. Now we know that the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. For me, that's enough. 
That's all I need to know. God created the heaven and the earth. Uh, but whenever we're trying to convince someone that there is a higher power, uh, we need to look at the origin of the universe. Now, if you look at this slide that I've created here, there's something that I'm showing you here with this slide. So we have here uh, in the background is the Big Bang. So there it is. Everything's exploding. Uh, on the bottom we have God's account of Genesis creation in six days. Day one, two, three, four, five, and six. Everything that was created in that order. Up here in the uh, left-hand corner we have a book written by Lawrence Cross, A Universe from Nothing. Over here on the right, we have a book written by Lee Strobel, The Case for a Creator. Something that's very interesting to note on these two books is both of them are New York Times bestsellers. Both of these books, New York Times bestsellers, both books uh, are, although Lawrence, Mr. Cross, is advocating for evolution and Lee Strobel is advocating for creation, both books agree on this. The, uni the universe had a beginning. It doesn't matter if you talk to evolutionists, if you talk to creationists, it doesn't matter who you talk to, everyone agrees that the universe, the world, the things that we see and know had a beginning. Whenever you look at the finite uh, nature of creation or the world, if we want to say not use the word creation right now, you look at the finite nature of the world, you understand that it had to have a beginning. It had to have a starting point. We look at how everything works in this world in which we live in. Uh, we see things that live. We see them go throughout the existence of their life. We see them die. We look at this world in which we live in and we can measure we can measure deterioration that has taken place in this world in the last few hundred years or the last thousand years that we've been keeping track of it. It is evident that there's deterioration that is taking place. So there is no question that it had to have a beginning. The universe had to have a start. It has not always existed. The universe had a beginning, and by this slide I'm representing the fact that both evolutionists and creationists agree that it had a beginning. Creationists believe that God spoke it into existence, which is what I believe. Evolutionists believe that there was a big bang that set everything in motion, that began to evolve, that eventually resulted in who we are, but both agree that there was a beginning. The law of cause and effect demands that the universe had to have an outside cause. Things don't just happen on their own. There is always a cause. Something made it happen. When the Twin Towers fell, there was a cause. The airplane that collided caused them to fall. Whenever we uh, go down the road and we see a building being built, we realize that someone put it there. It's the law of cause and effect. The watch that ticks on your arm, there's a battery inside of it producing energy that is causing it to tick. The law of cause and effect demands that the universe had to have an outside cause, whether that was God, a God or whether that was an explosion, there had to be an outside cause. Also, we understand by looking at the universe that the beginning had to be outside of nature as I know it. What started everything had to be something beyond what I can understand. Because when I look at what is here and what I can understand and what I can measure and what I can map, 
is not able to start a universe. So whatever started the universe had to be bigger and outside of what we understand. Now, as we see here from the title of this book, The Evolutionist Claims, that it all began from nothing. The creationist believes that it began in a supernatural creator, someone who was outside of creation. So I believe that the first evidence of a higher power is the origin of the universe. I believe it definitely clarifies that there was a beginning to what we understand that was bigger than we are. I believe at this point in the argument, though, someone could say, well, that bigger power was the Big Bang. So we definitely have to go further. But we can solidify the origin of the universe tells us that there had to be a beginning. So now it's important that we find out what was this power? What was it that was bigger than us that started everything that we understand? The second proof is the evidence of a designer. And I will, I will say to you that I struggled much because I wanted to take each of these points and turn them into a five-week series. So I'm trying to move through these quickly and not just wear you out with them because there is so much that can be delved into. So I'm trying to just scratch the surface on these. The second proof, though, of God is the evidence of a designer. Now the Bible tells us in Psalm 19 and verse number 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. The Bible tells us uh, that creation declares that there is a God. And as you have heard me say many, many, many times, I don't know how it is possible to live in this world that God has given us and not recognize that there is a Creator. Uh, you have to be willingly ignorant, as the Bible says, uh, in order to deny that there was a Creator when you look at all of creation. I believe the evidence of a designer declares that, this, that there is a God. Uh, design demands a designer. Now here on this slide, I have two pictures for you. On the left is what you get anytime you dump out a tote of Legos. If you get a tote of Legos and you dump them out, the kids downstairs are playing a game tonight using some Legos, building some things. If you take a tote of Legos and you dump them out on the floor, they look something like this picture on the left and you should not walk across them barefoot because it'll... it'll It'll mess your feet up, especially if it's in the night and you can't see. That's bad. But Legos dumped out of a tote never build anything. But if you have a design, you can build something like this on the right. This is one of the supposed to be one of the ten uh, most amazing Lego constructions in the world. If you have a design, you can you can make something pretty fancy out of Legos. Kale, when she was smaller, really enjoyed Legos and she'd save up her money and she'd go to Walmart and buy one of the little sets, you know, that uh, you could create a little house or you could make a horse and a, and a wagon and it'd have the little people with it. And she'd get it and she'd bring it home and she'd dump her Legos out on the table and we'd get her instructions out and we would follow the plan. And because there was a design, we could make exactly the picture that was on the box. But without the picture... Now, some of y'all might be really good with Legos, but if you just give me a box of Legos and no design, I might can build you a square house, but that's going to be about the limit. I'm not going to get much fancier than that. I can build some pretty awesome towers, you know. You start big and just keep getting smaller and smaller, you know. Uh, but 
you've got to have a design. Whenever you look at creation, it is obvious that this was designed. Now, I don't believe that there's any credibility to evolution whatsoever. But if it did have credibility, I believe all trees would be the same kind of tree. All grass would be the same kind of grass. And we could go on and on and on. It would reach the point and it would stop there. But when you look at the diversity, oh my goodness, all the diversity, you take oak trees. There's not just one oak tree. There's a multiplicity of oak trees that have so many different characteristics. When I worked at the sawmill, I was training to buy logs. Uh, red oak had characteristics that was better for this characteristic. Red oak was wonderful for furniture. Furniture buyers loved red oak. White oak was great for making tool handles. And this is what white oak was sold after. Nobody really wanted chestnut oak. It was good for firewood. They had different characteristics, different things that they were used for, but they're all in the oak family. And you can go on and on and on and on and look at the diversity. There is no question that somebody did some designing. And you can take an take a leaf or a piece of grass and you can hold it in your hand and you can look at all the veins and you can look at how it's put together and it's just mind-blowing. But then you take it and put it under a microscope and you see detail that's not even visible to the human eye. This stuff doesn't just happen. I believe that whenever we look at this creation, there is evidence of of a designer. So whenever we're proving that there is a God, we look at the origin of the universe. There had to be something or someone bigger than we are that pushed the start button on all this. But then when we look at how well it is put together, it is evident that there was a designer. The design demands a designer. And then we look at the origin of the design. We're building some restrooms down here on the pavilion. And we've been talking about this for a while, the deacons and I and the, those that are involved in building. We've, we've sat and looked at it. We've walked down there and we've looked at the building. We've talked about how will this work best? How will it tie in? And eventually we got to the point that we began drawing sketches on paper and we began putting it down. And then we began looking at this and, and looking at the regulations and we made changes until finally Brother Greg brought us a set of plans. It was a design. What was the origin of the design? We took time. We considered all the details so that when it is finished, it'll be exactly what we want it to be. Now, we could have went down there and just started laying block and built some walls on top of it and put a roof on top of it and put a toilet in the middle of it, and it would have worked, but it wouldn't have been everything we wanted it to be. Whenever we look at this world that we live in, whenever we look at ourself, it's evident that somebody considered every possible direction and made account for it so that it is exactly what he wanted it to be. The world we live in is not a world that gives any sign or any evidence that it was happenstance. Everything about our world and everything about ourself says that this came from a designer. All creation points to a designer. The next thing that we see here um, is the, th the third evidence, and that is the initiation of life. The initiation of life. You see there the picture, and we've got, of course, we've got man, we've got animals, we've got uh, 
vegetation. Uh, we've got uh, the birds. You, you see life. The Bible says in Genesis 2 and verse number 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now here's a fact. Life can only originate from life. Scientists have tried and tried with experiments to create life through chemical processes, through, through uh, mixing things together. They've tried and tried and tried to generate life, but they have always failed. The only way that life can be generated is with the addition of another life. Life is always, always, always generated from another life. One life has to give in order for another to live. We see this in plant life. Whenever you take the apple off of the tree, you open the apple up and inside the apple is the seed and in that seed is life that is able to produce another apple tree. We see this in mankind. Whenever the father and the mother contribute to give life and we could go on and on and on. Life always comes from life. Never does life exist without the ability of something to give it life. Life cannot be created outside of a life giver. For life to exist, whatever originated this world that we live in had to have the ability to give life. Now up to this point, you may have been still thinking that the Big Bang Theory held some water. But when I come to this point, I realize that the Big Bang Theory may have had the ability to cause an explosion that eventually became us. I don't think it's possible, but maybe we could have still been hanging on to it. But when we come to this point, it had to. It had to have the ability to give life. Now, I'm a little bit of a, of a, of a redneck, and I like blowing things up. Don't know if y'all do. I've, I've always said that I wish we had a big piece of abandoned property uh, where at the wild game dinner we could blow a truck up every year. It'd just be so much fun to fill that thing up with dynamite and blow it to the moon. I mean, you talk about pulling the guys in. Every guy in, in six counties would come watch us blow that truck up. It's just something about guys we like doing that you know, stuff. You know, I've got these, uh, I call them thunder mugs. They, are, uh, they look like coffee cups. They're about this big around, about this tall. they got a handle on them just like a coffee cup. I've got uh, Death Wish coffee uh, bumper stickers on them, and they look just like coffee uh, cups. They have a, a bore about an inch and a half bore in them. You put about 600 grains of black powder in one of them fellers and then pack it full of white bread. White bread just really packs up good and tight. The tighter you can pack it, the louder the bang. And you pack that stuff in there and light the wick. And I'm telling you what, it'll rock the windows for three blocks around. Them things just boom. And so me and the boys were uh, setting them off and we're like, hey, there's some grapefruits in there. Let's go get them grapefruits. So we packed them things full, and then we set grapefruits on top of I believe pieces of them grapefruits are still falling out of the sky. I mean, boy, just blew them things all to pieces. And we've all played around with things like that and enjoyed things like that. But you know something I've always found to be true is I've never seen an explosion create life. I've only seen explosions destroy. That's all I've ever seen them do. They, they take life. They destroy life. Whatever started all this, 
had to have the ability to give life. For life to exist, there had to be and a creator with the ability to give life. Whenever you think about this, as I was, as I was thinking this through earlier preparedness, I thought, wow, this is, this is something I had never really grasped completely. My very existence is testimony that there has to be a creator. Now, I know we know that, and we, we've understood that, but whenever I think about the fact, the fact that I have breath, the fact that I am a living being testifies to the fact that something living had to give me this life. Now, I know we can trace that directly to my mother and father, but we go back to the beginning of time. There had to be something with life to give me this ability to live. Uh, the Bible says that he holds uh, our breath in his hands. And so for him, for me to have life speaks uh, of a creator, the presence of life, our very existence is testimony of the reality of a higher power which possessed and was able to give life. Whenever we look there in Genesis 2-7, we find such a creator when it says the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The creator had the ability to give life. How do I convince someone that there is a God? We look at the fact of the initiation of life. Whoever, whatever, was big enough to start all this had to have the ability to give life. And then the final consideration this evening uh, concerning is there a God, I believe is the existence of moral law the existence of moral law. Melissa and I were talking about this the other day, and I said to her, I said, the thing that confuses me the most about atheists is that they still have a moral code of right and wrong. If I were to ever decide to leave the faith, y'all better watch out for me because I'm not going to have any moral code. Now, don't worry. I don't plan to leave the faith. But if I ever left the faith, there would be no moral code because my moral code comes from this book. And if I decide I don't believe in this book, then no longer will I believe in anything that is in this book. And if you got something I want, I'm going to come take it. And if you bug me, I'm going to shoot you. I'll have no moral code left. And so it confuses me when people say they don't believe in God but yet they still follow his moral code. How does this work? Now, many times they do fall into what we see in the book of Judges when every man did that which was right in his own eye, and we know that that leads to total apostasy, but yet they are still making a discernment between right and wrong. Where, how, where does that come from? If you, go to the, if you go to the lake and you catch a fish, he doesn't have any any idea about right and wrong. He has no moral code. Matter of fact, you may have a dog or a cat in your house that you've taught what he can do and he can't do, but as soon as you turn your back, he breaks the rule. He has no concept of right and wrong. His only concept is that I won't get a treat or, or Terry might kick me out the door. But <laughs> I'm picking on you, Terry. But uh, they have this idea. They don't have any concept of right and wrong. 
Trees have no concept of right and wrong. Humans are the only ones that have a concept of right and wrong. Now, without the guidance of God's Word, we make our own rules, do what's right in their own eyes, and we, and we find ourselves in chaos, but yet we still have an inner law that says there's right and there's wrong. Normally, the way that we try to define it when we work outside of the Word of God is everything that I want to do is right and everything I don't like that you do is wrong. And that's basically how we divide it. But there's still a moral code. Still a moral code. The Bible says in Genesis 2, verse 15 down through verse number 17, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. We find in the Word of God that in the beginning God established within mankind a moral law. God has established within mankind the ability to understand that there is a right and there is a wrong. There are those who may have justified in their own mind that it's okay to, to steal, but they feel that it's wrong for you to take their life. And we could go on and on and on. Inside of human beings, there exists an understanding of right and wrong. I believe that this existence of a moral law is proof that not only did this creator, whomever it may have been, not only did they need to be able to give life, but it was also a moral being who established in his creation an understanding of moral law. And we could go on and on, as I said. We could have taught a whole Wednesday on each one of these points, but I know that these are things that we understand, at least basically. And so I just skimmed over it this evening. But I believe the first thing that we must be able to do, and I encourage each of you, take some time to get into these subjects and read these subjects and study these subjects. I've got multiple books that I've been reading bits and pieces out of on the subject of Is There a God? And I was only able to give y'all about 30 minutes of hours of reading. Uh, get into some of these subjects. Read them. Get yourself articulate so that when someone questions you and says, I really don't believe in God, we're not standing there saying, uh, 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 but we can give answers. We can give proof. There are things we can point them to that counteracts why they say they don't believe there's a God. Now, next week, and I believe you know what my opinion is, but next week we're going to be answering this question, if there is a God, and I believe we've concluded that there's definitely something or someone that's bigger than we are, is he the God of the Bible? If there is a God, and I believe there is, is that God the God of the Bible? There are many other religions that are gaining ground in our day while their other religions are promoting other gods. Or they're saying that there are many gods. Much of this stuff is coming back and people are beginning to consider that perhaps there is a God, but it could be many gods. And so next week we're going to look at if there is a God, is he the God of the Bible? I'm convinced absolutely that there is a God. I am convinced absolutely that he is the God of the Bible. But next week I want to take some time and take the word of God and show you 
why I believe that the God we can observe is indeed the God of this book. So hopefully you enjoyed the lesson tonight and uh, come back next week and we'll see what the Bible has for us.